Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The signal that Kim Jong-un is sending to Americans is checkmate. You know, game over. You have to deal with reality. Kim Jong-un now claims his nuclear weapons program is complete. Putin feels incredibly emboldened. Putin believes this is the time to press his advantage. The new avant-garde missile system is invincible against today's and future air and missile defense systems of the potential enemy. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So if I ever need to method act my way into irritated, you know, just dive into the role of an aggravated person the way, say, Marlon Brando would have, I only need to call to mind the face of one Lindsey Graham. His recent complaint, echoing the irritator-in-chief, his boss, that everyone is so mean to the president and treats him so badly, reminds me that these guys simply will not stand up and fight. If you get called a racist, it shouldn't hurt your feelings to be called a racist. If the charge has no merit, let it go. And if it has merit, change course, close the border camps, and end the Muslim ban. But that would be actual robust engagement with critics. That would be participating in public life instead of shirking your duties, enacting murderously racist policies, crying for the racist deportment of a U.S. congresswoman, and then retreating to your weird executive time while Lindsey Graham defends you with his sobs. What is wrong with them? I repeat myself, but time and time again, I think what we're facing in Washington is much, much worse than acrimony and contentiousness. What we have is paralysis. The Republicans cage and kill kids. Then they whimper and hide when Democrats tell them maybe don't cage and kill kids. Then Democrats worry they're being too rough on fragile, cognitively impaired Republicans. And then they back off. Simultaneously, only slightly less fragile centrists like Joe Biden perceive intellectual challenges as attacks. Do these people ever truly get attacked in public space with the lynching, gas chamber, gay bashing, and rape imagery the rest of us get? Oh, that's right, they don't. White dudes retweet or laugh at that kind of stuff, but they cower when they are so much as asked a question. Ask Trump about virtually anything he has ever said or done, and he will tell you you are rude, vicious, and nasty. He can't handle a question. Last week on The View, Kamala Harris was asked about why she had, quote, attacked former Vice President Joe Biden on his civil rights record. And I love what she said. Okay, I really want to learn a Kamala Harris impression, but I'm I'm working on it. This is a presidential race, she said. We're on a debate stage. And if you haven't prepared and you are not ready, then you are probably not ready. My guest today to talk about conflict, not partisan conflict, nuclear conflict, is Scott Sagan, a chaired professor of political science at Stanford and senior fellow at Stanford Center for International Security and Cooperation. Scott is known for his research on nuclear weapons policy and nuclear disarmament and has been highly critical of any world's leader using Nixon's so-called madman option in warfare. 
That's acting crazy and capricious to terrify an adversary. So he's going to talk about North Korea, the Kremlin, and another leader closer to home who's acting crazy and capricious as he plays with nuclear hellfire. Scott, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you. So I, in particular, am a huge fan of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Um, uh, Your colleagues may have told you I wrote a column about the doomsday clock and um, got so interested in your work that I ended up buying a painting by Martel Langsdorf, the designer of the doomsday clock that I found on eBay. And it's my favorite thing. Oh, wonderful. I have a uh, original drawing that was done for the Wall Street Journal about this uh, article about North Korea that has mm. Kim Jong-un riding across the sky on a rocket, looking like uh, Slim Pickens at the end of oh, yes. Dr. Strangelove. Yes. It's a very dramatic picture, so I've got that in my office. Yeah, I don't know why, but something about collecting doomsday materials is, I don't know, make, maybe makes us feel more in control of this increasingly out-of-control world. So you have recently published a summary of the findings of an in-depth into what Americans think about conflict with North Korea. You say it's the answer is both reassuring and disturbing. Walk us through this. Certainly. In the past, there have been many polls done of the public uh, opinion about North Korea, about potential conflict, about living with nuclear weapons and what we should do about it. And in the opinion of my co-authors and myself, the previous polls were very misleading. For example, in September 2017, Gallup published a poll that got lots of attention saying that 58% of the American public favored using military action against North Korea. The United States does not accomplish its goals regarding North Korea with economic and diplomatic efforts. 82% of Republicans voted in favor and 37% of Democrats voted no, and that came up to 58%. Now, unfortunately, when a poll like Gallup asked the public, would you favor using military action, but doesn't tell them what kind of military action, Hmm. doesn't say what the consequences would be. You don't know whether the public is saying, well, yeah, I'm in favor of this or I'm not because there are no costs involved. Mm -hmm. So what you really need to do in order to understand this well is to give the public a sense of what the potential costs are, what the risks are. And that's what Ben Valentino from Dartmouth, Alita Haworth from Stanford, and I did in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists article. So what did you discover once the consequences of these decisions were spelled out to the people you polled? So we asked a representative sample, 3,000 people, equal the representative numbers of Republicans and Democrats, men and women, to get it to be representative. Mm -hmm. And then we varied the estimates of the number of Americans that would be killed in a North Korean counterstrike, from Mm -hmm. saying no Americans are at risk, just South Koreans, to saying there's a 10% chance that America will be hit and 300,000 Americans will be killed in retaliation, and then had one where there's a 50% chance that an attack will occur uh, on the United States and that North Korea could launch even if we struck first. Mm -hmm. The reassuring news is that under any one of those conditions, the majority of American public said, don't start a war. Hmm. That's reassuring. (laughs) And that counters the narrative that was existing, for example, in the Gallup poll of 2017 saying 58% wants to go to war. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the bottom line. And that's really important. There's also another reassuring aspect of it for the sake of extended deterrence. We have one condition in which North Korea attacks a U.S. ship, 
outside of South Korea. And the majority then says, well, if they attack us first, then we are willing to uh, attack. And that's good for deterrence. So two pieces of reassuring news. Mm -hmm. There's also some disturbing news in this finding. First off, when we posited and moved from one control group that said there's no chance the United States could be hit to another group saying there's a 10 percent chance that could be uh, hit, although the number stayed below 50 percent, more people actually voted in favor of going to war with North Korea, starting a war with North Korea, when they were told there's a 10% chance the United States could, could be hit. Hmm. And the only explanation we have for that is that there are a number of people, fortunately not a minority, but mm-hmm. still a significant number, for whom the basic idea that North Korea has tested missiles that could hit the United States must mean that they're planning to attack us. And so let's us start it now to get it over with hmm. before they've got to eat capability. Is that what they said, or is that what you divined from the other data points? A mixture. Um, There are some people who say that. There are others who don't explain it in that context and Hmm. don't explain it very well. Hmm. But there are some, for example, one person in the explanation said there's a 10% chance they could hit us now, but if we don't do anything, there's a 100% chance that they'll hit us in the future. I see. So that's that's one piece of disturbing news. And the other piece of disturbing news is that there's 33% of the public in almost every one of these different conditions, these different scenarios, that wants to go to war. Mm-hmm. They tend to be Trump supporters. Mm-hmm. They're overwhelmingly Republican. And the other factor that's, I think, revealing is that they're overwhelmingly supportive of the death penalty for convicted murderers. Oh, so this is another data point, a correlation. Yeah. So we're finding that there's a strong relationship between someone's retributive qualities, mm-hmm. that is, the beliefs that if someone does something wrong, they deserve to be punished, mm-hmm. and their willingness to start wars with with uh, foreigners, hmm. uh, and especially foreigners for whom uh, they've been uh, trained by the media or by their education or by by just their lack of knowledge, that they don't see those people as as humans mm-hmm. or as um, as like us. They think of them as very very different, sort of an in group out group phenomenon. And again, is the in-group, out-group, the tribalism, was that also in the study, or is, is that was that something you all inferred? Um, you see some of it in the open-ended questions. Mm-hmm. There's not a specific effort to prime people about that or to prime them on the opposite. Mm-hmm. But we do get a sense from some of the answers that people who, in that minority group, who are in favor of using military force, uh, have that kind of um, tribalism uh, at their heart. I ask that particular question because we had recently on the very interesting researcher, Bandy Lee at Yale, who, with a bunch of colleagues of hers who do forensic and other kinds of psychiatry, published The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump about his unfitness for office. And one of the things that they noted is there's almost a kind of um, death friendliness among Trump voters, you know, not only do they favor the death penalty, and it sounds like actively in some cases want to go to war, even war that could be devastating on the home front, but even rates of murder and suicide go up dramatically under Republican presidents and more recently are much higher, not just statistically significantly higher, but much higher in counties that went for Trump. So it's almost as though death is itself, and this, you know, 
what I like about the bulletin is you all will entertain some of the grander questions about cultural trends. The end of the Enlightenment is something I remember Herbert Lynn bringing up. And I, I mean, I don't know if you think that there's a note of a kind of almost a death wish in the conversation about North Korea sometimes. You know, Trump, obviously, the saber rattling around fire and fury. I mean, no one, however hawkish, has spoken this way about another nuclear power. I guess the Kremlin sometimes spoke that way, we will bury you about the U.S., but we've been very cautious, even under Reagan, even with you know Rumsfeld and Cheney around, not to talk about that kind of almost gratuitous devastation, that like pagan language of just, we're going to salt the earth, we're going to raise you and seize you and burn you. And that seems incredibly dangerous. Well, Trump's language in 2017, and even um, a bit going into 2018, uh, was uh, really heated rhetoric and a mixture of violent comments and juvenile comments. Yeah. So, you know, my button is bigger than than your button yeah, and right. mine works. Um, comments about um, fire and fury. And then just prior to the Singapore summit, um, uh, John Bolton, the national security advisor, said that we want to follow the Libya model, which by which he explained that that was that Libya would, uh, under Gaddafi, had given up all of their nuclear materials and the machines, the centrifuges that they would use potentially in the future to make nuclear materials usable for nuclear weapon. They'd given them to the United States, and that's what he was demanding. Trump, rather than calling uh, this the Libya model, starts saying we'll do the Gaddafi model only if they don't give us everything. If they make a deal, fine, but if they don't, we'll do the Gaddafi model. Mm -hmm. And given that Gaddafi was killed and raped, this did not go over very well in North Korea, as you can imagine. Yeah, that's right. Allegedly, or I guess there's pretty good evidence that Vladimir Putin also obsessed about the fate of Gaddafi, just the actual humiliation that he was subject to. That's definitely an image in the mind of some of these hostile foreign powers. Since that time, though, you should keep into account, and I think um, Trump deserves some credit for this, is that he's been really playing up how he's not in a rush to disarm North Korea. Mm -hmm. He's gotten a little overheated in the other direction, talking about the love letters. We've, yes. we've, fallen, we've fallen in love. So he's gone from too hot in one direction to being too hot uh, in in the other direction. And I think both the U.S. government and the, um, the North Korean government overplayed their hands in um, Hanoi, and we couldn't get an agreement there, in part because Trump thought, well, I'm going to get everything from mm -hmm. North Korea in one fell swoop, in one, one grand deal. And Kim Jong-un thought, oh, well, Donald Trump really needs uh, a success here, given his troubles at home. So I'm going to hold out and get full sanctions relief in order, uh, in exchange for not giving up uh, as much as the Americans wanted. Mm -hmm. So let's hope that um, the DMZ visit will lead to more practical discussions between the two sides now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. One of the things also that the poll makes clear is that not only we can probably agree that Trump is not a rational actor, he may be exercising some people who think he's not crazy, but crazy like a fox thinks that there's a little bit of madman strategy in play here, that he's fended off North Korea. He's been able to get closer to Kim, even using this wild language and the swerves back and forth that somehow has made it mano a mano. But let's just say we don't think that he has some great end game, that in fact he's being as impulsive as we've seen him be. It seems like the American people are also not rational actors in your poll. For one, they simultaneously overestimate and underestimate the threat of North Korea. They seem absolutely convinced that they could hit the entire U.S. mainland and decimate it. And then at the same time, you know, think that 10% of what they must also imagine is mutually assured destruction is somehow worth it, the 10% chance of that. That seems astounding to me because the last time there were really public conversations about nukes, they under Obama, we didn't hear much about them. We were, you know, fighting a, a ground war under the president before that. But in the 20th century conversation about nukes, everyone was a game theorist. The first thing we were taught about nukes in the 80s, at least, was that it's not a winnable war. It ends in the MAD, mutually assured destruction, right? That does not seem to be an article of faith among the people you all polled. It seems to slip all over the place. Do they imagine that nuclear strikes are drone strikes where you you don't lose any people? I don't think they imagine that. Um, I think that they're a bit more rational than what you're um, portraying, but they're very ill-informed. Got it. That that is, um, they don't think there's a mutually assured destruction relationship with North Korea. Mm -hmm. And I actually think they're right about that. North Korea only has a small number of weapons. Mm -hmm. They could do something to the United States that could be really disastrous, but it's not the kind of attack that we... Uh, were worried about during the Cold War. It would be really, really bad. Don't get me wrong about that. Yeah. But people understand that with a handful of weapons and with primitive technologies, people will have different estimates about the likelihood that a weapon could get through. But they, I think everybody knows it's not going to be the kind of calamity, the kind of, of apocalypse that we'd face in the Cold War with the Soviet Union or today if there was a nuclear exchange with Russia. In that sense, they're rational, but they're ill-informed because they don't understand even what 10% chance would mean of an Mm -hmm. attack or what it would be like to have 300,000 Americans killed in an immediate nuclear conflict with even limited number of weapons going off in the U.S. Well, let me ask you about contrasting the Soviet threat or the Russian threat of nuclear war with this one. The, I think, common understanding since the end of the Soviet Union is that we overestimated their capacity to just bury us and destroy us, that some of their nukes were in disrepair, that they weren't quite as advanced as we thought they were, that they'd been kind of blowfishing about their arsenal. And yet... Speaking of information and disinformation, it was important to keep alive the idea that we were had this mutual deterrence, that it was so terrifying and apocalyptic to think of nuclear war that we needed to frame it as the end of the world 
And I certainly hear that rhetoric at the bulletin that when you speak of doomsday, you don't mean, you know, a couple of harbors and you don't picture just that meaning some Navy sites in Hawaii or off the coast of Virginia. You picture the day after. You picture someone just walking through rubble, a total end times. And that's for a purpose. It's for a purpose to make this thing seem sine qua non of of war, that it's there'd be nothing after it. And it seems important for people to see it that way. Or does it? Um, I disagree. I think people should see the world as it really is. Mm. And that there is a big difference between Russia as a nuclear power today, mm-hmm. which has uh, a 1,500 strategic weapons, each one of which could hit the United States, and North Korea, which has a handful. We don't know whether they have 10 or 30, but Mm -hmm. it's somewhere in that vicinity. Mm -hmm. Um, A nuclear conflict with North Korea would be horrible. It'd be horrible for South Korea, it'd be horrible for Japan, it'd be horrible for the United States, and it'd be especially horrible for North Korea, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously. But it wouldn't be the apocalyptic... um, end-of-the-world scenario that you have uh, with Russia. That said, we should try to not have that war with North Korea, yes, too. Yes. Do you feel that we have now a fairly clear understanding of where nuclear development exists in, say, well, in North Korea, in Russia, and, and in Iran? I mean, it's always so much a guessing game and a surveillance game. Do you feel pretty confident when you say, for example, that North Korea could take out 300,000 Americans, but no more. Yeah, that's a very rough estimate based on um, a photograph that they had at one point showing uh, their primary targets, Mm -hmm. uh, where they, Kim Jong-un was getting a briefing, and there were three uh, missiles being launched in a map behind him to illustrate um, uh, their uh, first strike priorities. And that's why we estimated that, given what we know about the yield of their weapons, you can get in that kind of, of, of scenario. Now, that is a horrible, horrible loss and one that should we should do everything we can to prevent it. Um, but it's not the kind of, of Cold War uh, full exchange. Uh, we have pretty good confidence in the number of weapons that Russia has today because we have arms control agreements. We don't have that kind of confidence with what North Korea has because we don't have any agreements. Mm-hmm. And that's how our piece ends, by saying, not only do we need to have better nuclear education mm-hmm. of the American public, but it would be very helpful to turn in the next round of negotiations with North Korea, to turn from having the kinds of handshakes between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un that happened in Singapore, where both sides can say, oh, we had a deal, but it was vague. There was no specificity about what was agreed. And now we have these disagreements. Both sides are saying the other side's not following through. If you have a traditional arms control approach, we would actually say, North Korea, you've got to come clean about the number of weapons you have, the material that you have. Um, And you don't have to tell us exactly where all of it is because that could aid us in targeting it. Mm -hmm. But the first step to have an arms control agreement is to have some knowledge of the numbers. We want to get in writing a commitment not to test long-range ICBMs. In exchange for that, I'm sure they're going to want either some kind of restriction on U.S.-South Korean exercises or some lifting of the sanctions. But to my way of thinking, that's a worthwhile trade. 
And that's a lot better than just saying, I've got a set of love letters between mm-hmm. Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. And having agreements sorted out are a lot better than just having both sides yelling at each other. And so we're in this very, very awkward and dangerous situation right now. It seems almost uncanny to hear someone with your kind of reasonable mind quoting the words love letters and fire and fury and so forth, talking like Donald Trump. Do you think that there's any method to the madness to him or especially vis-a-vis nukes? Does he know anything that he's that he's playing with when he uses that language? Or do you in the modeling, just think of him as a completely unpredictable element in the equation? I don't know, and I can't answer that with extreme confidence. Mm -hmm. Um, We know in the past, for example, some American presidents have deliberately exaggerated their willingness to use nuclear weapons. Mm. Most famously, Richard Nixon Mm. um, told his advisors that he wanted the Russians, in his case, the Soviets, to think he was just crazy enough Mm that he might use nuclear weapons in Vietnam, and that way they would put pressure on the North Vietnamese to come to the mm-hmm. negotiation table. Mm-hmm. To reinforce that, Nixon launched what um, Jeremy Surrey and I have called the Madman Nuclear Alert. Yes. He actually put U.S. nuclear weapons on a high state of alert, flew them close to the Soviet Union, and wanted, he was bluffing entirely, mm-hmm. but wanted them to think, oh, he might use nuclear weapons against North Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Now, there was method in his madness. It didn't work, but nonetheless, Nixon was rational if if naive yeah. um, in doing this. In terms of, of Trump, we really don't know. He has talked sometimes in the past about you've got to be tough and you want he's even used phrases like the madman negotiation uh, tactic. Oh, he's used so that they, phrase. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's aware of this this phenomenon. At the same time, he also just is impulsive by his character. Mm-hmm. And and he is pugnacious by his character. So what I worry about is that um, not that there'll be this sort of rational decision to start a war, but that in a crisis, that something will go wrong and one side or the other will think, oh, the other guy's about to start and therefore I need to get the first blow in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think Donald Trump, nor do I think Kim Jong-un wants to start a war. Mm-hmm. But I think both of them have a willingness to take some risks. And Mm -hmm. when you're taking risks, you can stumble into a war. Were you among those who lost sleep over the resignation of Jim Mattis as defense secretary several months ago? Lots of Trump watchers believed that he was keeping peace and keeping a measure of sanity in the Pentagon. And now that he's gone, and now that there's been all kinds of staffing changes, personnel changes, and now Mark Esper is the acting Secretary of Defense. But what does that do to your calculations? It makes me sleep less. Yeah. You know, what you had when Donald Trump took office was that the A team and the B team of national security foreign policy Republicans were uh, banned from joining the administration because they had supported other candidates or had signed a series of prominent do not support Trump letters. Yeah. So anybody who signed that uh, was told you can't serve in the administration. Mm -hmm. That led to lots of key positions going to military officers who Mm -hmm. don't participate in such um, letter writing or campaigns. Mm -hmm. That was a good thing because they were very competent 
loyal people doing their best for the country. It wasn't necessarily a good thing for civil-military relations because, frankly, you don't want to have an ex-general as the director of senior uh, staff positions. You don't want to have uh, an ex-general as secretary of defense. But given the conditions and given what was happening, I thought it was great that Mattis took that job. And I think he was uh, – I admire him for doing that. I think he did a great job. So, yeah, I worry – I worry the same thing when H.R. McMaster left the yes. National Security Council yeah. uh, chief position and was replaced by John Bolton, who, in my judgment, is neither in the A or the B team of Republican National Security Advisors. One thing I was very surprised to hear at the unveiling of the 2019 doomsday clock was certain board members, especially Jerry Brown, saying that the alliance between Trump and Putin is heartening in some ways, even if it seems unseemly, leaving out election interference and, you know, Trump's conspiracy or not conspiracy and obstruction of justice, all that stuff on the home front. If your only interest is peace then we are less likely to go to war with Russia than we were under Obama. What do you think of that? I guess I, I admire Governor Brown, but I disagree with him mm-hmm. uh, on this. Um, I think that what you want to have with Russia is a, um, a realistic assessment that um, they're doing some things that are harmful to U.S. interests, mm-hmm. and they've cheated on some arms control agreements, and so we need to try to bring them back into the fold. And what Trump has done is, on the one hand, say all these very positive things about about Vladimir Putin and make jokes about potential interference in, in the next election, and at the same time, then get out of the arms control agreements, which were the realistic, practical way of constraining uh, Russia. Mm-hmm. So, so Trump prematurely pulled out of the INF mm-hmm. rather than say, look, we think you're cheating and here's the evidence. And in exchange for you coming back into compliance, here's what we'll do or here's how we'll renegotiate. Instead, he just pulled out. And that's, again, the pugnacious, rather um, impulsive behavior. And, and that's what's dangerous. Who do you think of the Democratic candidates for president might be? I'm not talking about who you support, but who do you think might be better on foreign policy, diplomacy, disarmament questions? Well, it depends on, on their sort of gut instinct and their experience. Mm-hmm. So only a few of them have had any experience in the national security sphere. Uh, Biden is the one with the most experience. And then various senators, you should look at where they've had their Senate committee responsibilities to judge. I think mayors and governors very Mm -hmm. rarely have any foreign policy Mm -hmm. experience, and that's problematic, as we saw, for example, with Jimmy Carter. Mm -hmm. And arguably George Bush. Very, yeah, very much so George W. Bush. Not George H.W., but George W. Bush. My guest today has been the incisive Scott Sagan. He's a professor of political science at Stanford and an expert on nuclear weapons and disarmament. Thanks for being here, Scott. It's a real pleasure. And yeah, I think you're doing a good job in what you're doing. So I very much urge people to listen to the podcast. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Let's thread it out on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And why stop there in your commitment to Trumpcast? Go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and become a Slate Plus member. Today is your day. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show is produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.
It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.